Welcome to A Learner's Journey. My name is Molly Sanders, and the goal of this podcast is to inspire and motivate you by connecting you with a variety of passionate horsewomen and men who have dedicated their lives to helping horses and their people. I'm grateful you're here. In this episode, I'm going to share with you a conversation I had with a talented horseman named Ryan Rose. Ryan and I met 13 years ago in Ocala, Florida at the Pirelli Center, and he impressed me then with his dedication and his talent. He's since gone on to teach all over the world, work with wild mustangs, and build an education-packed YouTube channel. In this conversation, Ryan shares the importance of making mistakes, a bit about what he's learned in working with wild mustangs, and some tips on getting a quality canner. I'm excited you're here, and I think you're going to love the conversation. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to the podcast. I'm excited that hey, you... Hey, I'm excited that you could join us. And uh, I don't know if people know, but we've known each other. We just figured it out that it's been 13 years that we met uh, on campus, on the Pirelli campus in Florida. And uh, so, but there's a ton of questions that I have for you about what you've been up to since then. Um, And even like one of the things that I've asked quite a few people that I've done the podcast with is to tell a little bit about how you got started with with horses. So that's where I'm going to start. And I actually don't know the answer to this. So this is, this is going to be interesting for me. So how did you get started? Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on here. Absolutely. So if I went, if I was to go way back to when I very first got started, um, I was 12 years old and my parents decided to homeschool us. And so I couldn't play sports and I kind of felt like I needed something more outlet, more of a social outlet and things. So I started taking riding lessons and um next thing you know you got your own horse and then from there you're having some trouble with that horse and you need to get into it and i kind of had to decide if i was going to stay in horses or get out of them because i was having a lot of trouble with her her name was flick (laughs) and uh that's when i read uh the book natural horsemanship um by pat and i went to a tour stop and saw it was um it's called share the savvy tour in 2001 and i started getting results right away from just implementing what I thought I saw at that tour stop and that sort of thing. And that just kind of got me on the journey of learning how to be better with horses. And um, so I started getting results with her right away from just doing the the seven games on the ground and that sort of thing with her. And um, from there, by the time I was 15, I went to a farrier school and learned how to be a farrier because there was a shortage of them in my area. I lived in a kind of remote area in Upper Peninsula, Michigan. And uh, that led to people's horses not standing well enough to get trimmed. And then they would bring them to my house for training mm-hmm. <laughs> to do that. And, uh, so by the time I was 16 years old, I had a, a fair business and a training business. And in the summertime, I, I would train about 10 horses and, um, that's how I got going. Wow. Um, and that, I mean, I think that's kind of rare for somebody that young to, you know, start taking horses into training. Um, that's really cool. And that whole time you were still, you were homeschooling. So that was kind of part of your homeschooling probably. Well, homeschooling lasted about a year and then mm-hmm. I went to a private school. Oh, okay. Okay. So you were going to school and doing this on the side. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which wow. was hard. I, cause all I could think about was all the work I had to do, you know, the customers and stuff. And I was having fun growing my, 
barrier business and training business. So by the time I graduated high school, I was trimming and shoeing about a hundred horses every six weeks. Wow. Pretty much a full business. And uh, I was training horses in the summertime and um, I spent, I, I really wasn't at school that much. I was on mm -hmm. the road. Mm -hmm. I went to clinics and some horse shows and just anything that came up that I could get out of school for. Wow. And luckily, just let me uh, make up work, you know, at home and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's, that's really, that's really interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that. I knew that you um, got involved in horse training early, but I didn't realize the part about the farrier um, and it makes sense. And so for you, it wasn't really a decision to become a professional. You just, it just kind of happened. You just. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was, it was really, really hard to get farriers in our area because mm -hmm. there was only a full of people in each community and then it'd be a hundred miles to the next town. <laughs> um, right. And so they, the, a few of the farriers in the upper peninsula got together and said, we need to have our association put on a farrier certification program. And so I went through two different courses and then I kind of apprenticed with my farrier in the, would go along and ride with him whenever he was in my area. Yeah. And okay. then it, it took off quickly and easily because I, there was such a need for it that right. it went well. And I was, so I was 15 years old and I'd get paid 15 bucks to trim a horse, you know, so I was making I was rolling, you know, rolling in the dough as a high school kid. Right. So. Right. And then you do training as well. I can, yeah. I can imagine that a lot of people watching this are like, gosh, I wish I had somebody like that in my area. Uh, Cause farriers are still kind of hard to come by and good and really yeah. good, you know, farriers too. So um, that's really cool. So I don't know if I was really good, but <laughs> one of the things that I really appreciate about you is and, and something that I've known about you since I met you is you're very generous with your time and you're very, um, you seem to really enjoy teaching people and sharing what you know. And so lately, you know, it's been fun to watch your YouTube videos and the Facebook videos that you have. They're really, um, they're really educational. And the other thing I really appreciate about you is you're someone that communicates really clearly and you're able to make things that are sometimes really complicated, really simple and easy to understand. Um, so I, I appreciate that. And uh, the other day, it was a post that you'd written um, on Facebook about making mistakes and the importance of uh, making mistakes and in, in learning. And I, it really hit me and resonated with me. And um, I wondered if you would be up for talking a little bit about that. Why is that important? Yeah, um, I think everybody in general, we have tr trouble thinking about a mistake as a good thing. We think of a mistake as like a failure. And then, you know, when we make mistakes, we feel embarrassed and or, our e you know, kind of our ego getting in the way. Or we're even in an environment where if you make a mistake, you might get, you know, um, demoted in some way. Mm -hmm. um, and so it creates this idea that making mistakes is a bad thing when it's, it's the exact opposite in reality. The more mistakes we make, the more experience we get. Now you don't want to repeat the same mistake over and over again. Right. But the willingness to try things and fail being able to fail often and then fail forward, <laughs> you know, like learn from those mistakes and, and move forward um, is really the key to success. So anybody that I know that's very successful, they're, they're willing to put themselves out there and make mistakes. Um, you do have to temper it with, when you're talking about horsemanship, as in, you know, don't do something that's dangerous, right? <laughs> like, right. You know, go for it. You know, if you're 
see, oh, sleep bag to ride this or ride horse or jump this thing or something. But right. um, a lot of times, so it's, if it, I guess if a person is worried about making a mistake, there's like a dangerous mistake, right? That you, you need to be cautious with and you have to listen to your instincts saying this, this might not be the best idea. Right. But if it's your ego telling you not to make a mistake because you don't want to look foolish in front of your friends, then that's the one we got to learn to work, work through because um, nobody starts at the top of anything. Um, you really have to make those mistakes and learn. And that's how you, you develop depth of a skill uh, to where you can you know, reproduce it. You could teach it. You could get really good at it. That sort of thing. Right. Yeah. I think that's so important to hear from somebody like you that, you know, has reached a level of success. Um, Cause I think that especially in horsemanship, um, we can think that we're failing our horse or, oh, I don't want to mess them up. Um, which again, like you said, it's not like now people are going to go, oh, I got it. I'm going to go out and make as many mistakes as I can. Cause then I'll be successful. That's not the, that's not what you're saying, but that knowing that it's part of the learning process, that it's inevitable. You're, you're gonna, you're gonna make mistakes. Um, and to know that like you're sharing that they're, they're part of being successful as opposed to that. If you make one, you're somehow a failure. Um, and is, is there anything that you would share with someone? Like, I know you've heard people, especially with young horses or horses that are new to them, they have this goal. And I can speak from experience. I've done it myself where I have a new horse and I think, I don't want to mess them up. I don't want to do anything wrong. You know, here, I've got this blank slate and you work with young horses quite often. Like what, what would you say to somebody that is saying things like that? Yeah, I think there's only one other than if we're not talking about safety issues um there's only one mistake as far as ruining your horse so to speak that a person could make and that would be to scare them and so if a person does something too fast puts too much pressure on um, and especially the speed part of it if you go to it too quickly that's a quick way to scare a horse and if you scare them that can lead to um uh a mistake or something that they've learned that's negative that has an emotional intensity behind it because they felt scared in that moment. It's true with people too. If you get scared and somebody puts you in a situation and you're scared in that situation, you're probably not going to trust that person uh, very easily after that. So shy of that, as long as they don't put a lot of pressure on the horse and scare them, um, it doesn't matter how many times they mess it up. It could get fixed fairly easily. Right. 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 That's, that's so it's really like, good. go out, it's like, go out, make mistakes. Just don't, don't make the mistake of scaring your horse, but trying things. If the horse does it wrong, no big deal. Um, even if they do it wrong for a long time, it can still be, you know, that's not ideal, but um, you know, sometimes we refer to our first horse that we've trained as our sacrificial lamb. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is the, the horses I'm training right now are my sacrificial lamb because I'm going to be better for the next horse. Um, and it's just, it's, it's never ending. Right. So. Yeah. You know, so as long as you don't scare them, uh, it, it, it will work out and you'll be able to fix it relatively right. easily. Okay. So then I've got a question, um, based on what you shared about, you know, not wanting to scare them. Cause I think that sometimes that can get in our way. Like, you know, um, people that are feeling like, Oh, well don't, don't have that around my horse and don't, you know, keep everything quiet and, and don't bring up my horses, you know, adrenaline. Um, I know that's not what you're, what you're saying, yeah. but, but if someone hears you say that, like, how can you, how can you balance that? Like, how can you develop a horse and expose them to things and not 
not scare them from time to time. Yeah. So I think the best way to, to look at that, when I say scare them, I'm talking about bringing them to a level, the highest level of fear, which would be the horse feeling panicked or threatened. Okay. So we're talking about really, really high level fear. A horse baseline is what we would call, I'm referring to um, lingo from the book, evidence-based horsemanship. So baseline horses are what we call automatic in behavior. It means that they're they're in the same state of mind that they would graze in, that they would fall asleep in, or that they would kind of just go through the motions and their expression would probably be their ears kind of back, um, not forward, um, that sort of thing. So they're just really, really chill, right? Mm-hmm. Um, going through the motions, kind of like how the frame of mind we would be and say, we're driving down a boring road and there's nothing going on and right. you just kind of going out and you're going through the motions. You're still awake, but you're, you know, you're just not, you're not really actively focused on something. Mm-hmm. So then the next level up is cur- being curious. And so that's where the horse is. I mean, just ever so slightly concerned that they're also interested and curious in it. Mm-hmm. And we would love horses to stay in this frame of mind, but they they lose interest very quickly. So we can't stay there for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Then, so the next stage up from that is where the horse is concerned. And this is really where most training happens um, because when a horse is concerned, they switch nervous systems and they become a little bit uncomfortable. And so the idea is if you're training them well, when they're in that frame of mind, it's when they're trying to not do the thing you want. And then when, as soon as they start to do the thing you want, you back off in some way. Mm-hmm. And that allows the horse to then relax back down to automatic in behavior. So this is where we see a horse lick and chew um, mm-hmm. and, and switch nervous systems. They go from the um, parasympathetic nervous system to the sympathetic nervous system and then back again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so that change is really important. And also when they do this, they have a dopamine release, which allows them to feel really good. And so that makes the training um, situation that you're just in more meaningful. It has value to it. Um, because of the dopamine release as well. Um, same with people, you know, if you open up your phone and you got a new message or something, you know, we get a little dopamine release. So if you right. bite into, you know, candy that has sugar, you get a little dopamine release. And we get addicted to that. We want more of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of the same for horses. Um, so there's that, but that happens from the concerned state, not the curious or the automatic behavior. From curious or from concern, you go up to a state that they would call hyper alert. And now is where you're on the edge of, scaring them. You're okay. not quite scaring them yet, but you're getting close to that. So hyper alert is when their head is going to be up real high. Um, their feet are probably could be moving. Um, they're really focused on something, you know, that's scaring them. Um, and they're, they're on that edge. So we, we don't really want to stay in this state very long. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you start to see a horse get to that point. You want to start bringing them back down, you know, starting to defuse the situation. Um, but if a person were to, you know, go at their horse very quickly with pressure, whether it's pulling on a rope really quick, a rein, um, using their tool on the ground very fast, you could take a horse and startle them and scare them and bring them up to the next level, the, the, the top of the pyramid of being panicked or threatened. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's going to have an emotional attachment to it. And they're, they're going to be legitimately afraid of it. And that'll be hard to reproduce. An example might be, um, let's say you, you tie your horse up to a hitching rail and then you, you're in a hurry, you forgot something. So you go rushing past them with, uh, something in your hand, right. And mm-hmm. they set back and they, they pull against it and they're afraid and maybe they don't even get away from it, but they, they really got scared in that moment. Well, whatever you scared them with <laughs> your energy approaching them or whatever's in your hand, mm-hmm. 
tomorrow you go walk by them with that thing, I guarantee you that horse is going to try to run backwards, <laughs> you know, because right. they're going to associate that level of fear with that thing. Right. Right. And with the, I, I love that continuum that you shared, by the way, because that, that does help to um, give a, a clear picture of, it's not just about your horse getting tense or bothered by something. It's like full on panic mode. Yeah. Um, but even with that, I can imagine, I can imagine myself listening to this or other people listening to this and, and thinking as far as the mistake uh, topic goes, hearing this and going, oh, oh my gosh, you know, I did that. Like I, I, I panicked, I panicked my horse and, and then, you know, just beating up on yourself for doing that. And, you know, I think even that, even that kind of a mistake, we don't want to make it right. Like nobody sets out and goes, I'm going to, you know, panic my horse today. But even with that kind of mistake, um, you still want to, you still, it's still part of the learning process. It is. It is. One of the things I, a phrase that I say a lot is horse training is 50, 50, 50 percent of the time we're teaching horses things we want them to know. And then 50% of the time we need to make an effort to not teach them things we don't want them to know. Right. And so we do have to make a conscious effort to put them in good situations and set them up for success um, because it is easy to scare their animals and it kind of is easy to scare them sometimes. Right. Uh, whether it's them rushing out of a horse trailer or pulling back when tied up or, um, I don't know, just different things that come up or another big one is like the, the vets there and maybe it's a windy day and you're, you brought them to a new environment because the vet said they wanted better lighting over here. And then they go to give mm -hmm. them a, a shot or draw blood. And that horse was tense already. And the vet put the needle in and now they're needle shy. Right. <laughs> so, and that's a, a one-time learning experience. Right. And so we do have to make an effort for preparation um, mm -hmm. instead of just trying to manage things in that moment. Right. Right. That's, that's really good. And then, you know, some of it is, based on our knowledge, you know, and that's why going and learning with somebody like you getting more information, more experience, more knowledge is so helpful. Um, because, you know, a lot of the mistakes that are made that are like what you're talking about, that are the, you know, panicking our horse mistakes are because of lack of knowledge. And we, we can't really be faulted for that. But like you said, if you've made the mistake, then don't make it twice you know, go get the, go get the knowledge, go, you know, educate yourself. Like I was thinking of a quick little example. Um, uh, when I was with Nate and Amy Bowers, uh, Amy's mare, um, fold. And it was one of the first times that I'd ever been around a, a horse that young. And so, and the horse was really curious. She came up to me and I reached out my hand to do the horseman's handshake and she exploded. Like she freaked out and and Amy was like, no, don't, don't do that with a young horse. You don't want to do that. Like all of a sudden your body changed shape and you know, it's it freaked her out. And I had no idea. I thought I was doing the best thing possible. Yeah. So, you know, just continuing to educate ourselves. Um, yeah. yeah. And you're, you're pretty generous with, um, oh, people don't mean to make mistakes and it happens accidentally, but sometimes people, you know, don't plan very well and it, they do things that are convenient for them and not convenient for their horse. And you know, sometimes it's not convenient to go out and work with your horse on trailer loading before you have to go to the show or the right. clinic or whatever. And with horses, you just, you have to make that extra effort to spend time with them and, and prepare them. Or say you got the vet or the figure coming soon, you know, go out there a couple of days, 
practice, you know, get them to put their head down with a little pinch on their neck or, mm-hmm. you know, things yeah. like that. So, um, right. I'm not as quick to let, to let people off the hook on that, you know, right. some of those things can be prevented with just a little bit of common sense and, um, discipline about working with them, you know, a little more regular things like that. Right. Yeah. That's really, that's really good. And now it's time for a short commercial break. I'd like to share a little bit with you about Shine a Light Productions. This is my new business, and if I were to sum up its goal in one word, it would be connection. Connecting you with people like Ryan Rose and other horsemen and women all over the world. Also to connect you with information and knowledge to help you on your journey, connect you with your horse, and to connect you with other horse lovers all over the planet. This is done in three different ways. One of them is with virtual clinics. These are offered throughout the year and give you a chance to study with horsemen and women from the comfort of your own home. Some of them have been David Lichman, John and Kathy Barr, and our latest upcoming virtual clinic is with Charlie Snell. It starts on May 14th. He's a phenomenal horseman that I hope all of you get a chance to learn with. He's a student of Ray Hunt and uh, has a phenomenal breadth of experience and knowledge to share. The second is through a Learner's Journey podcast, which you're listening to now, and there's also a blog. Both of these can come your way weekly in a newsletter that you can sign up for. And the last way is through a private Facebook group, a super fun way to connect with horse lovers from all over the world, and we'd love to have you join in. You can find out about these three different things on the website, shinealightproductions.net, and I hope to connect with you there. And now back to the conversation with Ryan. Which leads me to the next thing I wanted to ask you about that I've been curious about for a while. Um, so you've been doing these Mustang, um, what are you calling Mustang taming? Mustang taming course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have a whole bunch of things I'm curious about with that, but first of all, how did that, how did that start? Like, um, who came up with that idea? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think I just wanted to take on that challenge. I mean, I knew there's a big need um, for Mustangs to get tamed because there's so many of them in holding. Um, and it, I always enjoyed that taming process and the connection that you build with them and just taking that horse from wild to, you know, wanting to be a partner with you. It's, it's a pretty special experience. And I thought that other people would enjoy that as well. And then I, on a personal selfish level, I, I wanted to see if I could do it. I wanted to see if I could take a bunch of people who've never worked with Mustangs and get those horses tame in a short amount of time, you know, three mm-hmm. weeks and, um, and then adopt those horses out at, at the end, you know, it was just kind of a, I don't know, kind of a fun, fun thing to do. So, so yeah, yeah, I decided to take it on and I think we did eight the first year and we did 10, 10 or 12 the next year and the next year. And yeah, That's it was so cool. And are you doing it this year? No. So I ran into some issues with the um, getting Mustangs from the BLM last year. Um, they canceled all the appointments that they were scheduling for the, the facility that I go to, which is about seven hours from here. Okay. Um, so I, I don't know if it's going to, I honestly don't know if it's going to happen again or not. Um, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I hope, I hope it, I hope it does. Um, 
yeah, I probably had 20 people ask me last year to be in it. And I was like, no, unfortunately it's, it's not happening this year, but um, it is a big thing to take on though. Cause all the, one of my, one of the things that I did during this course was we would raise money too. So I would accept donations for this because um, there was a lot of costs with getting the horses, taking care of the horses for that time period. Mm-hmm. And then my commitment to those horses was that um, we were going to get them all adopted mm-hmm. um, at the end. So, so a lot of them, if they weren't adopted by the end, they would come to my house. I would continue their training until they were adopted. So it was a pretty big, uh, <laughs> luckily we did get them all adopted pretty quick. I think the longest I had one was maybe a week after. Wow. Uh, yeah. And that actually brings me to a point that I'd like to make. Um, you know, horses are on the domesticatable list, right? We think of like farm animals, dogs, cats, cattle, you know, they're domesticatable. But zebras are not on the domesticatable list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, some of you are probably thinking, well, I've seen a zebra that was ridden or, you know, played on the ground with them or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's like, that's one out of how many, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and with horses, so so let's say, okay, one out of a thousand zebras can be tamed if you play with them when they're you know, imprinted and babies and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. But that doesn't mean as a, as a species, we're going to go ahead and start taming all the zebras out there and getting them to be riding horses <laughs> or right. riding zebras. Right. But to me, I don't think it's a far stretch to go, well, one out of a thousand horses might not be the best to be tamed. <laughs> Maybe right. they should. Maybe there's enough of those wild instincts in there. They, it would be better for them to just stay, stay wild. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, I, 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 that's not a hard thing for me to accept. You know, mm-hmm. I, I know my qualifications as a trainer. I've known, you know, I've trained thousands of horses at this point. And mm-hmm. so if one comes along and I go, this horse is really difficult. It, that's not hard for me to accept that. It doesn't mean I don't know how to train a horse. It means that horse is really difficult. Right. And, that's okay. Like I don't have a problem with that because there's plenty of other horses that would be easier to get along with. Right. Um, and the, the part of the side that I'd like people to see is sometimes that horse that's really difficult there, even if you're not using harsh training techniques, that's a, there's a lot of stress on that animal over a very long period of time in order to get them to the point where they are trained. And I think you got to ask yourself is the end justify the means and, and weigh, weigh that out because it, it, to me, it's okay if some of them need to stay stay feral. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that it is really good to share with people um, that, you know, just because you're taking a horse in and maybe you have support or you're taking him to a trainer, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a good fit, that they're going to be able to get to a point where they're a safe partner. Um, yeah. and, and it wouldn't be fair for them to put him in that situation. So that's, that's really that's- good. Um, I think it's especially true with Mustangs because especially the ones that were wild or born wild. Um, so a lot of them are really good minded and things go really quick and it's, it's kind of unbelievable how far fast you can take them. But on the flip side, uh, the training process is very stressful for a lot of those mm-hmm. horses. And I would love to see it where they get the numbers managed to where they can stay wild and, and be out there. Um, as much as it, it's a fun experience to tame them, I think that mm-hmm. I would rather not see that happening. I'd rather see them just stay wild because um, right. it it's a stressful thing. And half of them, it probably goes really well. And it's really not that big a deal. The other mm-hmm. half, it's like, it's a, it's a tough deal for them. Even if they come through it on the other side, that, that initial process of being confined in small spaces, the trailer ride, right. all that stuff, it, it is a pretty stressful thing. And um, it's the kind of behind the scenes part that a lot of people aren't aware of. Um, 
and there's a lot of injuries that occur to them when they're one of the most stressful things to see is when they get sorted at the holding facility mm-hmm. because they're they're running into gates and panels and each other and there's right. a lot of injuries that occur and just in that and the people that are sorting them are really amazing at how good a job they do mm-hmm. but it's still a really difficult job no matter right. how you look at it. um and so i'd like as much as i like taming them i just want to put that out there that i would like to i'm an advocate for getting the numbers down where we can keep them wild. <laughs> right. Right. That's really, that's cool. I think that's really good for people to hear. Cause I, you know, I think a lot of folks um, don't have the experience that you've had um, of be, of going there and seeing what it's like. And, you know, I think we just get this picture in our mind of these wild horses, you know, running free. And then we don't also take into consideration that their numbers are so, you know, large that that becomes yeah. a problem. Out of so, control. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a complicated, uh, issue. Um, want to hear something really crazy. Yeah. The number one adopter of Mustangs is first time horse owners. Yes, I did. I, (laughs) it is, it is crazy. So, um, why, well, I don't know if the, I was going to say, why do you think that is? I don't know if that's answerable because it's also really common for first time horse owners to want to get a baby. Yeah. yeah. I think first time horse owners, they're unaware of the challenges that lie ahead. Right. And I work with a lot of rescues around the country, including mm-hmm. one of the largest ones, which is uh, best friends animal sanctuary in Utah, uh-huh. animal society. In Utah. Mm-hmm. And Mustang, you know, you get only see a lot of Mustangs come through um horse rescues and it's people thought they were just gonna sit in the round pen with them in time and eventually the horse would come eat out of their hand and it would just continue progressing from there and right. it's just not the, there's the romance and the reality and it's the reality of a mustang is it's a much bigger commitment than people realize and i think that's why horse owners that are experienced are a little more hesitant to do it or um they would they would have a better plan. They would get get in touch with a, like a tip trainer or myself right. or somebody like that that could right. help them on that process. Right. But I, I just I know many people that they get a Mustang, the first time horse owners, and the Mustang gets an injury and it ends up having to be put down because it can't mm-hmm. be doctored. Right. Where at the holding facilities, they have shoots that they can run them in and doctor them and care for them mm-hmm. um, in their current wild state. Where mm-hmm. most of us would no, I don't know of anybody else that has those kind of facilities at their right. house. <laughs> so if right. your horse before it gets tamed you're you're in trouble and when right. you take a horse that's wild like that and you put it in fencing and even the safest fencing you can think of is still going to be dangerous to them mm-hmm. so. yeah yeah that's good that's that's good to it's good to hear these things um so what do you think like you you've done a two of these uh courses so far and it sounds three. like three, three. Yeah. okay cool um what do you think is um, one of the big things that students learn from working with the Mustangs? Um, taming a Mustang will teach a person um, layers of the fundamentals. So things that we know to be true with horses about your body position, about how you you know make the right thing easy, the wrong thing difficult, um, reading the horse and what they're okay for. Um, it will really take all those things to a whole new level and give it all more meaning because you have to do it like exactly right. <laughs> you have mm-hmm. you know, once forward or backward is too much or not enough. Uh, you know, your, your body, your belly button and eyes facing them is too much pressure. Your shoulders and as doable. 
um, and the psychology you know, behind it all. So it really teaches people the core fundamentals of horsemanship, but at a really deep level. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I just watched a lot of students really learn um, how important those little things are about where you're at. And one of the things that was interesting is some of the students came in with a lot of experience with Liberty, working mm-hmm. with horses with Liberty, and they did really well with the Mustang team. Okay. Um, yeah. So because um, the Mustang will move away from you, right? And it'll basically be in a little bit of an evading, escaping mindset. Mm-hmm. And if a person understands Liberty, well, they might redirect their feet and move their own body in a way that doesn't give the horse relief from that pressure until it participates in the conversation some way and then mm-hmm. they can and that person would make leaps and bounds more progress than somebody who didn't understand that and so everybody kind of got good at liberty throughout the course because uh, that's right. how you start you know? um, right right yeah that's really for, cool. for most of the horses from the liberty we were able to touch them all over with a you know extension of our arm mm-hmm. and uh, that would make the haltering process go a lot easier right right um that's really cool um, so, uh, working with students outside of the, the Mustangs, um, you know, you've, you've done all sorts of different coaching and you've done clinics and you've traveled and you've worked with, you know, people that have never had a horse before. And then people that have been competing their whole life. So, I mean, you've worked with a large variety of people, um, what, what's something that you've seen people struggle with? that um you could share with us and then possibly share some advice on how to get through it yeah that's a good question i um there's probably there's a few probably a few different things it'd be hard to narrow it down to one thing yeah um but just right off the top of my head cantering is a hard one for most horse owners um and then getting set up where you have a, a coach, you know, a person to take regular lessons with. When I think somebody's kind of new and um, new to horses, getting private lessons, I think is a really good thing. Or if you can lease a horse instead of getting their first horse, I think a lot of people, there's a situation and they feel compelled to buy this horse, but it might not be the right horse for them. And they don't really know what that means mm-hmm. until they get into it a little further. Um, right. So I would say getting them to, get professional help and picking out the right horse for them or leasing a horse for a while until they get some experience, um, working with a person who's local to them on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And then for people that have horses and already into it, cantering is probably the big one. Yeah. 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 So what could you, what could you share, um, about cantering? What are some, what are some tips that you could share? I know that's huge. I know it's a huge topic, but what, what comes yeah. to mind? Like, what do you, what, what, what do people have trouble with, with, with cantering? Um, I think there's two parts. I think cantering is also hard for horses. So that's a thing that we put a lot of time into is developing a nice canter in a horse. And that, that just takes time. And a lot of horses don't have that level of training um, where they're really good at cantering. So I think in a perfect world, you would have the person learning how to canter on a horse that canters well, instead of them trying to canter on a horse that also does not know how to canter well. Right. Um, so that would be ideal to get some maybe riding lessons and learn how to ride the canter because you, you really have to you know, use your core and move your seat with the horse um, mm-hmm. and kind of a much bigger motion, a, a walk or a trot. And then I think if people were a little bit more aware of 
when their horse is on the ground cantering around them, if they're working with them on the ground, observing what that transition into the canter looks like, what the rhythm and relaxation of that canter, the quality of the canter, just when mm -hmm. they're on the ground and not mm -hmm. riding it. A lot of people are kind of okay with letting their horse, you know, whirl around out there in a canter that you wouldn't want to ride, right. uh, but they'll, they'll go with that on the ground because they don't, you're not sitting on the horse. So you don't feel how bad that would feel if you were sitting on them until right. they're sitting up and then you go, well, I don't want to ride this, you know, yeah. so then we end up avoiding it. But I think if that canter could get developed to be more particular about the position that horse is in on a circle, mm -hmm. it's, it's flexion, it's relaxation, it's rhythm, and also the departure into it, being more picky about get, having a soft cue that gets the horse to trot or, or walk um, into the lope uh, would make a big difference. That's really, that's really helpful, I think, um, to hear, because I think um, that transition is is so key and like you're sharing a lot of people will allow this crazy tear around canter on the ground and be like yeah they're cantering they're fine they should be okay they canter <laughs> um and then when you're on them it's going to be a totally different story um so are they rushing into the canter are they having a trouble you know picking up a lead are they bucking into the canter that that's really helpful to really just uh yeah. isolate that transition yeah, I've seen a lot of people value maintain gait and direction on a, on a circle over the quality of the movement on the circle. And so what I what I try to do is I slow things down and I don't um, kind of go to neutral and allow a horse to maintain the circle until it's a quality <laughs> movement. Um, okay. And so until it's a quality movement, I'll stay at a walker trot and I'll um, you know get the horse to have a better shape and, and confidence and relaxation. A lot of horses will circle kind of with a counter bend or their head and neck being kind of inverted. And neither one of those is going to lead to a quality canter transition. And right. so if we can get that horse's position better, um, I call it the three circle game um, that I do. And I, I'm just real picky about that for a while. I, mm -hmm. Every horse is different. It might be five sessions. It might be a month. Who mm -hmm. knows? Um, but once, once they can maintain that for a circle or two at a trot, then I'll start to canter but I wouldn't just put a horse into a canter and go, can they do 10 laps um, right. with the position being poor? Right. That's really good. Um, and you've had, I know I've seen a video on the canter on YouTube, but you, do you have videos? Like I, I'm sure that there's people listening that are going to want to know more and like, okay, yeah, you're describing my horse, but, but how do I do what you're talking about? Like, is this yeah. part of your video library? Yeah, so I have a lot of videos on this on YouTube um, that are free that people can watch. The only thing that's a little bit tricky about the YouTube um, channel is that the titles, the thumbnails are meant to get people to click on it. And so they're not necessarily, it may not say the three circle game. It might say something like best way to teach quality circles or something. Okay. You know, right. It's hard to say. So it's kind of, it can be tricky to search on there. Um, and that's where I refer people to the paid for version, which is my Patreon page. Yeah. Um, and it's ten dollars a month, um, and I can video coach people on there. The oh, cool. videos are labeled better according to what technique I'm teaching in that video. Okay, so it's a pretty You're, pretty good video. Yeah, that's that's really good. Um, okay, so I'll make sure that people have a link to that. Um, so if if you're listening and you're wanting to know more about the canner, you can click that link and learn more with Ryan. Um, that's really good. Um, so how about the year ahead? I know you've got all sorts of different 
ideas and if uh, are there are there things coming up in the year ahead that you're looking forward to maybe for your own horsemanship um, or clinics that you're teaching um, and I'll, I'll leave it there and then I've got another question. Yeah, I'm very excited about this year. Um, coming up in February, I'm going down to my friend Jake's place in Florida and him and I are going to teach, uh, he calls it Pear Tree Ranch. Um, we're going to teach a train the trainers course. So the idea is helping people that want to be professionals or currently professionals and kind of building a little more depth to their horsemanship. Um, and so that course is full and we had a big response. A lot of people were interested in that. Cool. And uh, moving forward down the road, I've, I'm probably going to be doing, getting more involved in um, training instructors. Um, I don't want to have my own program or anything like that, but I, I get a lot of calls and messages from people that either want to be professionals or they want to intern with me, but you can only take on so many interns in a year. And right. so I think if I start getting into that more. Um, so this year, I'm hoping to create a digital um, instructor uh, course just to help people learn what it takes to, to be successful in this business, how to market themselves, how to charge, how to structure courses and lessons and that sort of thing. So right. it should be fun. Yeah, and that's then cool. I'm really having fun with my YouTube and Patreon page, getting to make videos um, there. Um, I have an international audience with it. I have people from all over the world. And it's really fun to have a platform now. I think I have about 38,000 subscribers on my YouTube channel. Wow. And yeah. And it's um, last year I had 3.3 million views on it. And I think I'm already at like mm, almost 900,000 views for this year. And so it's really fun to share what I value about horsemanship on there. Um, and if I could just real quick share that, I usually like to kind of start with this um, for people that don't know me. My every every person you learn from has their own, um, what we'll, maybe we'll call it your unique selling proposition, something that they really value about horses or horse training. And because it's it's kind of like a religion that we follow, you know. Mm -hmm. And my thing that I really value is seeing a horse connected to the person's idea. So whatever that is, if that mm -hmm. idea stands still to, to be saddled, if that's to load up into the horse trailer willingly, to do a flying lead change, to play at liberty, whatever that idea is. When you see a horse really mentally understanding their job, you're going to see a horse that's relaxed, confident, and putting effort into it. And um, that's really key. And given the fact that they're prey animals, we're always trying to help them be more comfortable with what we're asking them to do. And I'm very convinced that when you see a horse who's anxious, they're usually not anxious because of pressure somebody's putting on them. They're anxious because they don't understand what that pressure means. And so I, I really don't enjoy seeing a horse that's stressed out. Um, even if it's a very low level of pressure, but they're stressed out because they don't know what it means. Mm -hmm. um, I just kind of feel for that horse. And so I'm, I'm just kind of on a mission to help people build more connections with their horses. And um, so for me, I'm not, you know, I really love all aspects of playing with horses. So if I feel a horse connect to playing on the ground or, you know, hunting an obstacle or, uh, you know, hooking onto me at Liberty or riding bridleless or hooking onto a cow, or it doesn't matter what it is. When I feel that connection, that's, that's what I love about it. Right. That's awesome. Um, and you're, you're, um, you're living, living and teaching in Wisconsin. Um, but you travel, around the States. So if, if someone's wanting to, you know, maybe come and study with you in person, where can they find out more about that? Yep. So my clinic schedule is on my website, rosehorsemanship.com. 
Okay, cool. And then they can find out about the Patreon and um, is your YouTube is your YouTube channel linked there as well? Yeah, I believe those will both be on there. Awesome. So I'll make sure that all those are in the little show notes so people can find you. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. This has been really interesting and I think is going to help a lot of people. And, uh, it's exciting when people can learn more, like if they hear something that they're intrigued by that they, that there's a place that they can go to learn more. So it's cool that you're, that you're doing that. So thank yeah, you. The number one feedbacks I had at clinics was, well, how do I remember all this? You know, that right. we just learned. And so as I go through the, the videos on YouTube, I'm getting a pretty good catalog there. And just about any lesson that I've taught somebody at some point, they can go back and review on there. So it's, it's pretty fun. Right. That is really cool. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for doing that. And, um, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for spending the time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ryan. If you haven't already, connect with him. You can find out everything you need to know on rosehorsemanship.com. So I'd like to close with a quote about making mistakes from Adam Osborne. The most valuable thing you can make is a mistake. You can't learn anything from being perfect. So keep trying, keep showing up, keep getting out there and learning. Thank you for being here. If you haven't already, I'd love it if you would follow or subscribe and even think about leaving a comment or a review, depending on where you're hearing or listening to this. And thank you so much for being a part of this and have a wonderful rest of your day.